Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Justin Bass. He teaches at Dallas Christian College and online at Jordan Evangelical Seminary in Jordan. He's the author of The Battle for the Keys, Revelation 1.18, and Christ's Descent into the Underworld. His new book is The Bedrock of Christianity, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Bass. Thank you very much. Great to be here. All right. Well, we, we always jump right in on, on this show, often going to the title. What do you mean by the bedrock? What makes this the bedrock of Christianity? What I wanted to do with this book was really in one place, kind of in a short, you know, one-stop shop, you know, 180 pages or so, just really capture what is the the foundation of our faith, but but really the evidence for the foundation of our faith, which is Jesus's death and resurrection. And so I wanted to just lay out what are those facts, those historical facts that are agreed upon across the board, you know, atheists, you know, uh, Jews, uh, liberals, conservatives, people across uh, the spectrum of scholars, you know, ancient historians, uh, biblical scholars, classicists, you know, what do they all agree on when it comes to Jesus and early Christianity? And surprisingly, I think there is a, a strong foundation of what they agree on. So that's what I refer to as the bedrock. So it's kind of a, it kind of has a double meaning. It, it, in one sense, it's what is the bedrock of our faith? It is the, the resurrection of Jesus, this is, is death and resurrection. And then what is the bedrock facts that everyone agrees on that I think demonstrates, if you follow the evidence where it leads, to the resurrection, to the historical fact of the resurrection. So that that's really what I'm doing with the with the word bedrock. Very good. Early in the book, you refer to quote the mythicists. Uh, who or what are are the mythicists? Maybe one could say. I mean, this goes way back, but you say that it does. The mythicists, in some form, do survive. And so I, w- I would follow up with a question: Why? does mythicism, I guess one would put it, why does that survive? So for, first of all, define what you mean by that. Uh, mythicist is, uh, I, I just have to bring this up in the book. I Trust me, I, I would rather not. It, as, as I mentioned in the book, uh, most, most uh, solid historical Jesus scholars will give them maybe a footnote, if that. But basically, they're just very popular online. You know, a lot of uh, people that have blogs and, you know, in the YouTube comments, on their Facebook posts, um, you know, certain tweets, you know, the things like that, that's where you'll find mythicists predominantly, you know, putting out this idea that Jesus just never existed, that that basically the early Christians just, just kind of made up a, a, a celestial Jesus, that there really was no historical man that grew up in Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And so that, that's basically the, the whole idea behind mythicism. It really is only about 200 years old. You won't find anybody who even said that Jesus didn't exist, even among Christianity's most ardent critics uh, for the first about 1,800 years of the church. So this, it seems to be a, a uh, given birth in the French Enlightenment, in the Enlightenment 
um, I think it was a French scholar who first kind of posited this idea, and it seems to be from people who were really antagonistic to Christianity. They just kind of wished, you know, Jesus away in a way. So just kind of, I wish he just never existed. So here's here's a theory uh, that he didn't exist. And, and so so it survives today, uh, really pretty much in, just specifically among the, the people who refer to themselves as atheists or agnostics, uh, and usually the most, the most uh, virulent against Christianity. So it's, it, it seems to have followed that stream uh, since its existence. But that's basically what what mythicism and and who mythicists are. Bart Ehrman, who who I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, he's an agnostic. You know, writes tons of things, you know, against the truth of Christianity. But he mocks the mythicists. He he makes clear that pretty much all of them are are atheists that seem to just be uh, angry at Christianity. Hmm. And the internet allows them to survive because you can just keep putting it out there, no gatekeeping, and no matter how much refutation. Yeah, and sadly that you know there's that 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 bridge, there's that that long bridge between or not bridge but gap, you know, between, you know, scholarship and what 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 the scholarly community is saying and then what people are just saying, you know, at in 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 churches or or in, you know, in the in the public square online uh and people are discussing on Facebook. So there there there's such a wide gap between those sadly, uh because there's just such a watered down teaching, you know, in the uh, even in the in most you know church communities that they just people aren't aware that this is this has been a refuted position for you know at least over a hundred years this has been definitively refuted, but it it really has been kept alive by the internet. I mean I think that's that's what's given it kind of a new a new life. And so people who don't know all the information and if they're not trained in apologetics or they're not trained in you know his, uh, history and and they, they're not reading the top scholars in the fields. Uh, then they're they're going to just buy into it. And so I think a lot of people just accept it. Oh, this is what, you know, people think, you know, when they read a blog or they read a Facebook post. Right. Uh, so what what are the bedrock facts that even atheists, informed atheists, acknowledge? This is true. This is factual. We're not refuting that. What are those? Yeah, and there's quite a few. Uh, I, I really hone in on four that I use in the book, uh, and I use like Bart Ehrman as kind of a representative. <laughs> if he if he if he argues for it as almost certainly factual, then just about all, all the other uh, solid you know historians and and people of of even even of unbelief, if they're in those fields, they're going to agree on those things. So because uh, he he would be on the far end. He's not as far as mythicist, but he would be on the far end of of the skeptical spectrum. Mm-hmm. The first one would would obviously be crucifixion, you know, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that he died at that crucifixion. In fact, we only know of one uh, person, a uh, single individual who, who survived crucifixion in the ancient world. Josephus mentions one who uh, actually survived that he it was one of his friends. He saw that was crucified. And he said, hey, you know, he told the Romans to get him down. And, and uh, even with a lot of medicine, whatever they had at that time. Uh, there was three of them. Two of them died, and one did survive. But uh, that's the only person that ever survived crucifixion. So Romans knew well how to kill someone. So so it's uh, you know no one really doubts that that Jesus uh, didn't die. So he died by crucifixion. The, the other one I focus on is many times people in books like this will go straight to the appearances. That's my third uh, bedrock fact that that multiple people, men and women. Um, believers and even an unbeliever like Paul uh, believe that Jesus appeared to them. But the, the second one I focus on is just the resurrection claim itself, because it's really unique in the history of the world. It's, the, it's unique in the history of ideas. The idea that a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, but any human being, 
died and rose again, and rose again in the resurrection sense of uh, the Jewish scriptures. So the idea from Daniel, because Daniel 12 is kind of a, uh, the key text that, that speaks about the future resurrection uh, at the end of the world. And what the early Christians were claiming is that that resurrection that Daniel was talking about has begun in Jesus of Nazareth. So when Jesus rose from the dead, that resurrection that's going to happen to everyone at the end of the world has begun in Jesus. He's already been resurrected. So that so where did that claim come from? That's kind of, kind of my historical argument. You know, where did they get that idea? They they had many many uh, categories for a martyr who died and would be exalted to heaven or or is, is with us in some way but but he's more like Enoch or Elijah, something like that. But but saying he was resurrected, that is that is absolutely unique. So crucifixion, the resurrection claim, the uniqueness of that, uh the appearances, as I said. And then my my fourth one is also one that you don't find in many of these books that I think we as Christians should really um, uh, utilize more often. Uh, really, the beginning about the fourth century, this was used very strongly uh, by people like John Chrysostom and Augustine. Just the idea that the Christian movement, you know, began in the very place Jesus was crucified, and it not only went on to take over the Roman Empire, but it, of course, has gone on to dominate uh, the world. I mean, I, I would say it's really the only truly world religion, and the fact that it's really spanned the globe and, and, and has continued to dominate, even if it's declining in the West, the Pew Research shows it, it's advancing significantly in Africa and, and Asia and, and um, uh, South America and so many other places. So, uh, so those are the, the main four, crucifixion, the unique claim of the resurrection, the, the multiple appearances, and the, uh, the, the, the unconquerable, indestructible movement that, that continues to be you know, so dominant today, the largest religion the largest movement of any kind today. You mentioned Lewis. How does your book relate to C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity? It doesn't even take the sandals off the feet of Lewis's book, but because uh, that was actually one of the first books I read when I became a Christian in college. It's uh, still one of my favorite um, books of church history. But uh, I, I compare it, though, in the sense that what Lewis was trying to do was say, you know, what, where do all Christians agree? You know, whether Catholic, whether Orthodox, whether Anglican, whether Lutheran, you know, where do we all agree? What are the essentials of the faith? Let's, let's, and he called that mere Christianity. And he, he laid that out and did his own, you know, brilliant exposition of, of those, those fundamental essential doctrines that all Christians uh, everywhere and at all times believe. And so I'm saying this is mere historical Christianity in my book. You know, where do all scholars, you know, legitimate, you know, credentialed scholars who are teaching in some way across the Western world, you know, where do they all agree on the facts concerning Jesus and, a concern, and concerning early Christianity, the rise of the Christian movement? So that's, that's the parallel. I'm making there. And, and, and I, I use one of Lewis's great quote. And one of the things that really convinced him to become a Christian was, you know, he, he loved all the myths of the ancient world and, and, and he was always attracted to them, but none of them were actually historical, but he found in Christianity, the, the, the wedding of those two things, history and myth, you know, the, the greatest of myths is, is the story of Jesus, but he's also a historical person who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And so that's that, that beautiful wedding of, of history and myth. When you say the crucifixion, just to be clear, you, you mean the whole process, the trial, the, 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 the brief imprisonment, and, and the crucifixion. You mean the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole passion, I guess. Well, I don't go through all the details, but yes, I did mention before, one of the other bedrock side of it that everyone agrees on is the sources. So what are the, what are the sources that give us these bedrock facts that everyone agrees on? And, and those happen to be Paul's seven letters. 
So when you go to Paul's seven letters, Galatians, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, First Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon, those seven letters across the board, you know, all, all 2,000 years of church history, but just even in the last 200 years of all the, you know, skepticism and all the putting the Bible through the fires of uh, biblical criticism, even through all that, across the board, scholars have always said those seven letters are written by Paul, and those seven letters have uh, are full of historical, solid historical information. So because of that, I don't go, go in detail on the other sides of the Passion, which are mainly from the Gospels. Paul doesn't talk about the trials, things like that. But so your audience knows, of course, scholars do actually agree on certain aspects of the Passion that, that th- those would be considered bedrock too. It's just I'm not I'm not using the Gospels in that sense, but that Jesus went and endured those trials. Everyone agrees on that. Certain aspects of that passion are definitely a part of the bedrock facts, but I just hone in on the crucifixion. As you proceed into the discussion, you begin with the meeting of the so-called two titans, as you call them, Peter and Paul. Uh, What what happened at that meeting, and why begin with that one? So it's just such a fascinating meeting. I've, I've always been you know, when I first started reading the Bible and realized that Peter and Paul hung out <laughs> within three or four years of Jesus's death in Jerusalem. I mean, an incredible thing. You know, you think about, you know, what did they do? You know, what did they talk about? Of course, they talked about Jesus, but, you know, where did they go? You know, <laughs> if you've been to Jerusalem, you know, it's not that big. They, they could have easily walked to the places like we were just talking about that where, where Jesus was held in trial, where Peter denied Christ, where where Christ was crucified, where the empty tomb was. I mean, they could have gone I, I think, how could they not have gone to those very places and, and talked about those things over that two-week period that, again, all scholars agree uh, that that meeting took place and Paul spent, Paul basically was Peter's house guest for a full 15 days. But the main reason, another reason I talk about it is because it's at that meeting during that time that Paul probably received certain information that he did not know, because, of course, Paul was a Pharisee who was fighting against Christianity, who was trying to destroy the Christian movement. And then Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, and he learned a ton about who Jesus was and about the fact that he's raised from the dead, that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He probably went back through all the the prophets and Moses and the Psalms and realized how all of it did point to Christ and point to this crucified man. But he didn't know some of the historical facts about Jesus and, and his public ministry. He probably learned those things when he spent that time with Peter uh, during, during that 15 days. And, and one of the things that scholars agree he probably received during that time was these creedal affirmations or um, you can call them creedal traditions or hymns that we find in his letters, in these early letters, which are the earliest writings of the New Testament. And so uh, the, the most significant one for, for this purpose to demonstrate, you know, I think historically the resurrection is this creedal tradition that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. So Paul says, I received this at some point in the past, and, I'm not, and I delivered it to you, meaning the Corinthian church, which he founded around 4950 AD. So if, if this model is correct, in 37, around 37 AD, when Paul met with Peter, he received this tradition from Peter that says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Kephas, you know, or, or Cephas, as people say, that this would be the, the appearance to Peter. Then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Then to James, his brother. Then to uh, all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. But all that before, last of all, he appeared to me, would be this early creedal tradition that probably was this memorizable kind of catechism 
that was used by the apostles when they went out to plant their churches. They probably taught the early disciples those basic foundational facts of Christianity, bedrock facts of Christianity, and, and, the, and the stories were probably there too. So whenever they heard, like, for example, he was buried, they probably thought of the story of Joseph of Arimathea. When they heard he was raised on the third day, they probably thought of the women going to the empty tomb, and, and that was on the third day, things like that. So, so that's the way I see it. I see the creedal tradition as kind of a, a nice summary version that ended up getting extended out into narrative as we find it in the Gospels. But that's really the earliest statement of Christianity. I, I call it the, the true Apostles' Creed. That, that really goes back to those earliest followers of Jesus. And Paul basically relays that to us in, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. So that, that meeting is when he received it. That's why I spend a, a chapter talking about that. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. So when you look at the testimonies, what would you say makes for a reliable witness? What makes Paul's account of things trustworthy? It's a very important point because, you know, we could, we could point to someone like, you know, Joseph Smith, for example, of Mormonism, you know, who, who made claims to see supernatural things. And, and one of the things I try to focus on, I think, in one, in one sense, we need to focus, like you're talking about, on the credibility of that witness. But we also need to look at, is there multiple witnesses? I mean, even going back to the law of Moses, you know, don't trust an account unless it's two or more witnesses. And so, for example, in the case of, of Mormonism, for, for, for some of those supernatural claims of what they saw, it's all based on Joseph Smith. I mean, we're basing it all on him. So then we'll look at his credibility. And I think anybody who studies the history would not look at Joseph Smith as a credible, as a credible or, or even a good man. But when you look at Paul, interestingly, someone like Bart Ehrman or, or most you know, unbelieving scholars will admit Paul was genuine. He was not a charlatan. He was not a peddler. He was not seeking money. He was not trying to sleep with the women at these churches. You know, he was a solid man who believed that Jesus rose from the dead and was compelled to see people become more and more like Jesus. And, and in every way, from his letters, from these le seven letters that, that scholars all agree that he wrote, he's presented in every way as a credible witness. So, so basically, when you, when you, you know, look at all, what all the scholars say about Paul, they, they're obviously, the unbelievers are obviously don't believe that Jesus actually appeared to them. But what they do agree is that Paul genuinely believed, he sincerely and genuinely believed that Jesus appeared to him. He's as solid as an eyewitness in that sense as you can get. If Paul had kept his mouth shut, his life would have been a lot better. <laughs> that's, that's another aspect. I mean, <laughs> his suffering, the suffering he went through, uh, and, I, and I detail that in, in, from 2 Corinthians 11, which is a, like a mini autobiography Paul lays out of all these sufferings he's going through, has gone through over the last about 10 years of his ministry. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He's been beaten. He's been whipped this constant, constant suffering. Why did he go through that? Just like you said, he could have been like, you know, who, who were told about in the, in the New Testament, Demas was one of his fellow 
missionaries. And Demas just had enough of it and just ran home. I mean, ran to Thessalonica, which basically the Las Vegas of that day. You know, he said, "Forget <laughs> this. I'm going to I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the craps table." Yeah. And so, and so, Paul is someone who truly showed by his life and his death, because I, I I talk about how all the evidence we have suggests that he was, you know, martyred in Rome under Nero. And so he, from, from, from that moment of the Damascus Road to the time that he died, he in every way gave witness to the fact that he believed genuinely that, that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to him. And, and again, not just Paul. So I think Paul is so solid and so credible, but we also have Peter, we also have James, we also have the women, we also have, so, so we, ha- we have the, the 500. So we have so many witnesses we can summon to testify. You know, if this was like a court of law, we would have all these solid witnesses to come before the jury and say, yes, Jesus appeared to me. Yes, Jesus appeared to me. And I think it would pass any any uh, court test in that sense. I think that that is a good way of putting it. Uh, you you sit, I was actually on a jury trial last week. Uh, you, you, you sit there and you judge the credibility of witnesses and you, you try to make a reasoned conclusion and... You trust your, your, your own judgment on that. Now, you spend several pages on a, a section of 1 Corinthians. It's, it's 15 verses 3 to 7. What is important in that section? Well, as, as I mentioned before with the uh, meeting with, with Paul and Peter, that's, that's where they received that. And then if that's the case, if, they, if that got transferred to Paul in 37 AD, then that means it's sourced in Peter. And that would mean it was written sometime before that. And so we're talking about a, a creedal tradition that goes back to Jerusalem that was probably authored by the original apostles. I would say Peter himself was kind of over. He might have been the Thomas Jefferson, you know, of, of, of that document. But that document, that memorizable creedal statement goes back. And again, this is across the board. This isn't just <laughs> fundamentalist Christian saying this. This is every single scholar who has studied this agrees that that creedal statement goes back to those early years of the 30s AD. So we're talking, you know, two years at, you know, two to five years at most to, to Paul receiving it, but it being composed, we're talking probably within months, I would say, of the ascension of Jesus and the, and the, the event of Pentecost. So we're talking about in those earliest days that you read about in Acts, we know that that creedal tradition was composed during that time in Jerusalem, before the church had even really gone out into the Gentile nations. So, so it's so early. I mean, and it's just unparalleled. I mean, you could try to compare that to any other religion to have documents that, that state the bedrock truths of their faith. I mean, it's like, it would be like having uh, a document that has the four noble truths that dates to the 10 years after Buddha died, which is laughable because we, we don't have anything from Buddha anything about Buddha written down for 600 years uh, after his life, something like that. So, hmm. so, so it's an incredible thing in, in that, in, in and of itself. But then it go, then you go, go back to the uh, testimony of the witnesses, because what this creedal tradition does, it, don't, it not only says Jesus died and he rose again, but it says, here are a list of witnesses. And, th- and that's really the purpose of the creed, but also wh- why Paul is quoting it in First Corinthians 15. He's demonstrating the truth of Jesus's resurrection to show if Jesus rose from the dead, then we all also will rise from the dead, meaning all believers. And that's his whole purpose of starting with Jesus's resurrection, because he's, his resurrection is the foundation for all of our future resurrection. So in one of the ways he demonstrates that Jesus rose from the dead is, hey, I, he appeared to me. I saw him. 
And if you don't believe me, go, go, go check out the, go talk to the 500. Many of them are still alive in Jerusalem, he says, and go, go talk to Peter. Peter, you know, Peter's been around, you know, Peter was one of the uh, competing celebrity pastors in Corinth along with Apollos. And so Peter's been to Corinth. So he said, ask, ask Peter, ask James, his own brother, ask, you know, other apostles that saw Jesus. So, so you have this list of witnesses that goes back to the very earliest days of Christianity, really, you know, I think unparalleled in, in any other, you know, supernatural claim for, from the history of the world. Now, you mentioned that there were a lot of messiahs preceding Jesus, pretenders, uh, you, you call them, and I can, I can hear a lot of atheists saying, look, this was, this was a common thing. Jesus just caught on because of his own charisma. But you, you would want to put it as, look, we had these other messiahs, and they might have formed their own little cults. They didn't come close to lasting for very long. They were exposed as pretenders pretty, pretty quickly. The fact that Jesus' ministry gathered so much and what it produced in, in human history, you actually take that very easily as evidence in favor would that be right? That's exactly right. I mean, in fact, I I list a few of them, but there are, by my count, I think 14 of these other messianic-type movements. Not all of them probably claim to be the Messiah, but they were all some kind of revolutionary. Most of them were Jewish. Some of them probably did claim to be Messiahs. One like, for example, Bar Kokhba. I like comparing him to Jesus. Uh, Bar Kokhba was this man that was hailed to be the Messiah by one of the most prominent rabbis of the time, Rabbi Akiba. And this is, this is about exactly 100 years after Jesus' death. And, and, and so the Christian claims about Jesus are already prominent. And, and in fact, according to just, Justin Martyr, the early church father, Bar Kokhba and his movement persecuted Christians during his kind of messianic reign in Jerusalem. He, he lasted about almost three years until he got crushed by the Romans. But when he died, when he was beheaded by this general, this Roman general, and, and you know, his, his movement came to an end. And, and, and as I talk about, and I've shared in many lectures, you know, there's no bar today. There's no bar You know, you're not going to meet a follower of bar at, at, at Starbucks. You know, where are the followers of bar Where are the followers of Judas the Galilean? Where are the followers of the Egyptian prophet? Where are the followers? And, and you could even go a little bit further in history that I don't talk about, but what's his name? Um, Sabbatai Savi. I can't remember exactly how to pronounce it, but Sabbatai Savi is a guy from the 16th century who claimed to be the Messiah. <laughs> and, and, you know, where, where are his followers today? What happened to him? And so you go down the list of these. And, and so that's what makes the Jesus movement absolutely unique, because you have all the same cr- criteria, a charismatic person, a person who people believe was the Messiah, a person who was, who was executed by Rome. But for some reason, this movement not only continued, I mean, it'd be one thing if it just continued. I mean, it could have, you know, Jesus movement could have stayed in the Middle East all the way up to this very day. It'd been like, you know, the Sikhs in India or something, or, or the, the Shintoists in Japan, or you know, movements that, that began in one place and stayed there for thousands of years. It could have done that, but it didn't do that. It went on to not only take over the Roman Empire, but it spread, like I said before, all around the world and is continuing to do it. All the Pew Research shows by 2050, Christianity will still be the dominant religion of the world. How is this possible? To me, you know, if Jesus rose from the dead, that would explain it. <laughs> if, 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 if he is Lord and he is guiding this movement and, mo- and doing what, it, what is happening all over the world, and that's why all these people all over the world believe they're encountering him, 
you know, even Muslims, you know, I went to uh, the Middle East for, for three years. I was living there. That's where I was teaching at, at Jordan uh, Evangelical Theological Seminary. And I met Muslims who had dreams of Jesus and have converted to Christianity. And, you know, how do you explain that happening, not just in the Middle East, but it happens in North Africa, it happens in Asia, it's even happened to people in America. You know, how do you explain all over the world people experiencing this man, this crucified man from 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth? And, and, and I would add, probably at probably some cost to themselves. Exactly. Yeah, the, 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 not just beginning with the apostles, but even to this very day. You know, if, if you, in many of those areas of the world, if you, especially in the Middle East, if you, if you were Muslim and you say now you're a Christian, you are basically um, risking, risking death. Last question. Uh, there's much more in, in, in the book uh, that I, I, I would tell our listeners. But last question, you single out Paul's, quote, fool's speech as particularly relevant to all this. What was the fool's speech and why is that important? So that's in 2 Corinthians 11. And I love that testimony from Paul. I think that speech really just, again, all scholars agree, Paul is genuinely telling his own history. So, so scholars would agree, Paul experienced the things that, he, that he's saying there. He's not lying. You know, he, he really experienced the shipwrecks, the stone, you know, he was stoned, which, you know, is paralleled in Acts. Uh, he was whipped. He, was, he went through all this. And so I think that just supports, it gives strong support for, again, Paul's credibility as an eyewitness as, and, and as a person who genuinely, sincerely believed in uh, Jesus's resurrection and that he appeared to him. Uh, because like we talked about, the martyrdoms of some of the apostles, which I think we have strong evidence for people like Peter, James, and Paul himself. But with Paul, we have even more. We have not just his martyrdom, but we also have within uh, one of these bedrock source letters, we have his own testimony of all the suffering he's going through. You know, what what is he getting in return <laughs> of all that? Like, like we said before, he could have just abandoned the mission at any point and just lived his life, and he wouldn't have had to be, you know, suffering like he did. You know, once you took off the name Christian, you weren't a target anymore in, the, in this time in the Roman Empire. And so I think it just, it just demonstrates the, the strong credibility of Paul as an eyewitness uh, to the resurrection of Jesus, that he sincerely believed it. But it also, showed you, it also shows, you know, just kind of an application point, you know, that how, how, how uh, adventurous the Christian life really is. You know, Paul, Paul, no one could say Paul had a boring life when you read that. <laughs> The book is The Bedrock of Christianity. Professor Bass, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. This was great. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.